Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I hope you remember to beware the Ides of March and all that. Uh, I'm thinking more of the Ides of GDC, though that doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> the Ides of GDC and PAX right after it. It's going to be a really interesting week because Google's apparently announcing a new console that's going to change everything. Oh, of course it will. As if I needed more reason to hate video games. Yeah, it's like, uh, I've been through this, like, haven't we all been through this, where everything was going to change with Android uh, consoles and Apple's consoles and... Uh, Heck, remember when they released the 3DO? Yeah, I I tried to forget about it. You know, one time my brother uh, played 3DO at some friend's house and he came back and he, like, you know, was watching me play Secret of Mana. He's like, this is so lame. 3DO was so amazing. (laughs) And one day I'm going to get mad and just remind him of that day. I remember seeing 3DO in a Circuit City... And playing a really neat uh, shoot 'em up that mm. at the time had amazing graphics for a home console. Uh, 3DO, I will say this much for it, it did have a really fantastic version of Star Control 2 that uh, you can now get. Uh, I think the Urquan Masters is based off that, and it's, it's free as far as I know, unless it was all taken down because of that lawsuit. Uh, but yeah, it had that for going for it for a long time, but not much else. You really like Star Control 2? I love Star Control 2. We gotta like have an episode about Star Control 2, I don't care. All right. Yeah, I recently reinstalled Sins of a Solar Empire along with a along with the graphical mod, and I really shouldn't be playing it. <laughs> <laughs> there's always time for old games, Kat. No, there's really not. Life is short, Nadia. <laughs> Life is short. Life is short. Play more old games. Because there's not enough time in our lives for old games, the next game on our top 25 RPG list is number three, and that is Witcher 3, which came out four years ago and i have katie on the show to talk about that in a spoiler filled segment that's the next segment so please look forward to that in the meantime acts of the blood god is a u.s gamer podcast you can find us on itunes stitcher wherever podcasts are sold if you like the podcast do us a favor and leave us a review also subscribe to the newsletter you can find it on the site every week we send out a newsletter on wednesday That rounds up all of the RPG headlines, includes the show notes, and also a nice little essay from either myself or from Nadia that you won't find on the site. The most recent one was me talking about why scenes from a wedding, or sorry, scenes from a marriage, (laughs) I keep mixing those two up, but it's the same thing, right? Pretty much. Uh, The quest in Witcher 3 is so darn effective. Nadia, what was the last uh, essay that you wrote for the Acts of the Blood God newsletter? Uh, I believe I wrote about, like, um, the Pokemon starters, the new ones for Gen 8, and how I was really surprised how everyone latched on to Sobble, because when I saw Sobble kind of slithering out of the fountain in that reveal trailer, I said, oh, here comes everyone making fun of this, this, this whatever this is, and I'm like, yo, yes, Scorebunny, he's the best, Scorebunny's number one, and uh, actually in a poll, Scorebunny did come in at a close number two, the distant number three this time is Grookey, and I was like, what's wrong with all you people? But uh, I've grown to like Sobble. The grass type always comes on number three. I know, they do, don't they? Even though, um, I have to admit, it's like I usually like the grass type, but I never choose them. <laughs> it's always the fire type first. And then yeah. uh, by the time the game comes out, a whole bunch of hipsters latch on to the grass type. <laughs> Poke hipsters. I really liked Sceptile in Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, though. I like Sceptile. Um, when I played uh, Omega Rubies and Alpha Sapphire, I picked Sceptile. I, I picked um, Trico, and I got a Sceptile. I named it Sparkle Motion because I had just watched, rewatched uh, Donnie Darko. 
I've never seen Donnie Darko, but I'll take your word for it. It is a weird-ass movie, but I really enjoy it. I seem to recall that it ends with... Okay, I'm not going to spoil the ending for a movie that I've never seen, but I think I know the ending. You probably do. I think it's infamous. Anyway, not a lot in terms of RPG news this week. I guess there's this game called The Division 2 coming out, and I'm told that it has RPG elements. Actually, I played a little bit of it. Not a lot of interest in covering this one, Nadia. Um, I'll be honest with you. Military shooters and I, we just uh, don't really play off each other very much. Yes, I can definitely see this appealing to a certain segment of people who really, really like military paraphernalia mm-hmm. and, you know, prepping and yeah. and guns, lots and lots of guns. Yeah. This, and- this game is so pitched toward that crowd. Yeah, and I'm just not part of that crowd. Even playing uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, I'm just like, uh, this gun looks powerful. The lines tell me it's powerful. I'm going to use it to shoot this bear that's eating me. By all accounts, The Division 2 is a pretty good game. Mike Mm -hmm. is in the process of reviewing it for the site. Mm -hmm. It's being well-received online. I'm sure a lot of people will like it, and it will have legs. But I started playing it, and I was kind of turned off immediately by the little introduction cinematic where... Uh, a ominous narrator intones, do you have a gun? Does your neighbor? And I was like, okay, <laughs> I got it. Is this yeah. an NRA advertisement? Kind of. That's what it felt like. And it brought me back to the preview event that Ubisoft had a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And they were like, not political at all. By the way, uh, put on all of this military gear and pose in front of the American flag. No, that's not political in the least. What are you talking about? <laughs> Anyway, so we're not going to be covering Division 2 on the podcast, because I really don't think our audience cares. Uh, Probably not a whole bunch. I mean, we do sometimes cross those lines from, like, RPG to something else, but that's really not so much for military shooters. I'm sorry if you were expecting to hear us talk about Division 2, but uh, we can't can't, uh, provide that service for you. We talked about Breath of the Wild that one time. Yeah, but let's face it, I think one thing's a little more RPG-like than uh, the other here. (laughs) Just a little bit. But uh, as for things that are also RPG-like, I recently did an interview for Fire Emblem Heroes with the folks from Intelligent Systems. Unfortunately, they did not give me a lot to go on, except for they are interested in potentially adding co-op play to Fire Emblem Heroes. So that's a little bit exciting. Oh, that's pretty Uh, cool. Yeah, I'd be willing to play Uh, co-op. The interview actually ended up getting picked up by the Fire Emblem Heroes community, and they actually had some nice things to say. They're very oh, friendly nice. over there. Oh, that is very nice. Actually, my uh, Suikoden 2 write-up got picked up by the Suikoden community, and they had nice things to say about it. So thank you, everyone. Oh, thank you. It's always nice when the internet is nice. It is, isn't it? It's so rare. But uh, other RPG news. Um, so in a couple weeks, PAX East is going to be happening, and Bethesda is going to be holding an event And they're going to be having a Fallout 76 panel, and I imagine that's going to go well. (laughs) I have to to give them props for their chutzpah. They have a lot going on here. Yeah. I really want to see if there's an open mic kind of thing. Oh, God, that would be a disaster zone. You think so? I think the the true believers would be attending a Fallout 76 panel and would be asking very respectful questions. I would would hope so, but um, I don't know. I feel like there might be some spiteful people here, or... Maybe even just, like, spiteful people say, oh, I'm going to go there and give them hell. And then, like, they see, like, the panels at a time when they're going to go drinking and they're like, ah, forget it. And the true believers come out for the panel. Just recently I went and rewatched the Diablo mobile video where mm-hmm. the... 
Uh, you know what I'm talking about, where the guy oh, yeah. gets up to the microphone and goes, is this a joke? Yeah. <laughs> is this an April Fool's joke? I remember yes. that quite well. And it was, the announcement was even more agonizing, just re-watching it, where there are clear applause lines oh, or cheering lines crickets. that he pauses for. And there's, it's not just silence, it's dead silence. There's nobody mm. talking. It's like somebody just, there's a vacuum of sound and he kind of looks around and he's like, uh, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Moving right along. There's actually one thing I remember from that interview is uh, there's a person who stands up and asks, their voice is shaking. I think they're trying to keep from crying and they're asking, will this be on PC? Like, give me something here. And uh, he's told, nope, just on mobile only and like just... The, Don't the you whole, guys have smartphones? Yes, that was that was the one that was the line, and just the 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 I guess the auditorium just couldn't hold it in anymore. You could hear the the roars of disapproval. Oh. Yes. <laughs> it's true. I do have a smartphone, and I, I'm going to tell you a secret, Nadia. I'm probably going to play Diablo on it. I don't know if my phone really. I, I was stupid, and I got a 32 gig phone. I can't. You can't really handle big games. I'm I'm an mm. idiot. I mean, I can't imagine that Diablo is going to be too resource intensive. I'm sure my iPad can probably handle it. Oh, your iPad, probably, sure. But yeah. I only have one phone and I use it for, like, everything. It'll be fine. Uh, I would rather have Diablo 4 for sure, but, mm-hmm. I mean, formed over Diablo for mobile might be okay. I'm, I'm sure it'll be perfectly functional, but I'm sure I might bounce from it too. Who knows? Because, like I said in my write-up of Diablo uh, Mobile, uh, have, being someone who played, like, Dungeon Hunter, which is a very much a diablo for mobile and and i enjoyed myself but there definitely came a point where i said okay are you holding out on the best loot from me so you'll hope that i'll buy some or are you actually playing fair and that's what i'm worried about with diablo almost never exactly exactly and it's just hard to find a mobile game that plays fair Uh, nintendo recently ostensibly said that they were encouraging developers not to go all overboard with microtransactions. But I think that as soon as you have microtransactions, you're kind of poisoning the well. Pretty much. Like, there's no there's no going back from them. Even though, even in a game like, uh, I guess really the only game I can think of is Pokemon Go, which doesn't really offer you much in the way of uh, uh, microtransactions unless you want to buy costumes. It's true. And it doesn't really affect gameplay I haven't really had to spend a dime, but the second that they're there, you know that there's a spreadsheet out there mm. that's tuned in just such a way to encourage people to put subtle pressure on people to spend. Yeah, definitely. Although one thing I do like about Pokemon Go is that you can't buy any good items other than if Pokeballs. Like you can't buy um, Super Balls, you can't buy Ultra Balls. It's just you can buy regular Pokeballs with, with cash and that's it. Speaking of Fallout 76, uh, the Wild Appalachia expansion just came out. I have literally no comment about it because uh, it deleted Fallout 76 for Division 2. Oh, that's a that's an exchange, isn't it? It sure is. One service game for another. <laughs> One service game I'm not going to play for another service game I'm not going to play. Has Bethesda addressed some of the more awful bugs in the game? Uh, they're making a little bit of progress, but I think they're going to need a lot more than a content drop. I think they're going to need a Taken King level overhaul for Fallout 76. Yeah, uh, almost certainly. As it is, it's just kind of a boring game. I just don't really like it that much. <laughs> you should, you take away the story and Fallout just doesn't become that interesting. The combat sucks. Yeah, uh, it, it, the, at the preview event, when I did the preview event, I did kind of like finding audio logs because I, I like that method of storytelling, even though I know it is 
overwrought as hell. But uh, I totally see your point of view as well, because, uh, you know, let's face it, Fallout, uh, especially Fallout New Vegas, a major part is that, that those character interactions and those those companions. The next piece of RPG news, I just spent 100 bucks on Super Robot Wars T. Oh, congratulations. The yes. T stands for... Uh... Terrific. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't stand was... for anything. I was trying to make a joke about the uh, the money. I was like, what's 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 a money term that starts with trillion? T? Okay, yeah. but you spent a hundred, so I couldn't think of a good hundred. <laughs> and it's out next week. Uh, I'm sure I'll talk about it a little bit on the podcast. Even though I run US Gamer and can technically write about anything I want, I don't know if I'm going to write that much about it because it just I don't know. It's so niche. It's such a niche game, Nadia. <laughs> We do have some people in our comments, though, who, who do like uh, robot uh, oh, yeah. wars. Oh, yeah. so. I mean, there are like the 10 extremely vocal people in America who like Super Robot Wars. I'm so one of them. Write for them. Write, pour your heart out. I might be writing a quick news item when it does come out, basically mm-hmm. being like, hey, it's out. You can get it in English. Here's where you're going to get it. Here's where yeah. you can get it. Here's Here are what the what the the series are um and if you if you're not familiar with super robot wars t it's got a lot of classic anime in there it's got harlock it's got magic knight ray earth it's got g mm-hmm. gundam it's got cowboy freaking bebop yeah see that's the reason i could see some westerners being interested in this one as soon as i saw cowboy bebop i was like i'm kind of in and, and this I is got, for switch right yep it's on the nintendo yeah. switch i got it in english it, it's pretty expensive uh-huh. And I, every time one of these new games come out, I always have to weigh, do I want the one in English or do I want to just get it in Japanese so that I can get the premium sound version that has vocalized. Oh, like like actual people singing lyrics to like yes. J-pop? Oh, that is yes. pretty amazing. I have Like to the original OSTs. Did your parents ever have CDs with, I don't know, TV theme songs or whatever? Because <laughs> no, my, my parents did. That is amazing. My parents are more into like Pink Floyd and Jethro Tull. Okay, that's well, that's my parents. That's those are the kind of CDs we had, and also like Disney music CDs and that kind of thing. Though my parents also liked, you know, rock from the seventies, oh, yeah. whatever. But 70s. yeah, it's a little like that though. You're basically having TV show, uh, show tune type <laughs> uh, <laughs> music that you're spending extra money to get into your game. I think that's worth the extra purchase. Uh, the only downside, as you say, is it's in Japanese, so I wouldn't be able to understand what they're, uh, not so much what they're saying in the music, but uh, the rest of the text, if the rest of it's in Japanese. Yeah, you get anime themes instead of, like, My Mother the Car. <laughs> <laughs> Though, in previous Super Robot Wars, you could replace music with any song you want. And oh so my I would often put in songs from the appropriate shows that I really liked so that I could have them in the game and they would be switching between them and everything. Uh-huh. It'd be That's pretty a- funny to put in 60s uh, TV show themes like I Love Lucy or My Mother the Car <laughs> or whatever that we're playing over these. <laughs> yeah. That'd be pretty amazing. I wouldn't be very creative. I'd be like, hey, man, Guns N' Roses, use your illusion. Woo, let's go. <laughs> I bet people do that. Oh, yeah. I can imagine playing a giant robot game with user illusions would be pretty amazing. I really hope the Nintendo Switch, by the way, allows me to have custom soundtracks. Uh, you could do it with the Vita and the PS4, mm, but right. uh, we'll see. I, I would hate to lose it because the the bass tracks tend to be somewhat limited these days. Ah, oh, well, yeah, so I hope, that, I hope that exchange is there for you. In any case, I'll probably be playing it with the volume off while I watch The Sopranos anyway. Yeah, that tends to happen, doesn't it? I, I tend to play Switch games with the volume off while my husband uh, watches Gordon Ramsay stuff. All right, last item of news. I mean, there's a little bit of a thing going on with the 
actor from the game Judgment, which mm-hmm. is connected to Yakuza, and uh, they use this actor's likeness uh, in addition to his voice in this game Judgment, and he got busted for cocaine in Japan. Right. And as a result, they are they pulled the game from the shelves in Japan, and now it's an open question of whether or not it will actually be sold. That is, uh, see, I knew that Japan was very serious about drug offenses, but I didn't realize they were that serious. Extremely serious, yes. It's uh-huh. to the point of being completely ridiculous about it. Yeah, uh-huh. I was actually scared when I went to Japan. I was like, can I, like, I have pain medication for my fibromyalgia, and I'm like, can I bring this in? So... I was going to say, Nadia, why are you smuggling coke into Japan? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I take cocaine from my fibromyalgia. You didn't tell me about that part. <laughs> like, hey, doctor, I have fibromyalgia. He's like, oh, I better do cocaine about it. There's a famous story about Paul McCartney being deported from Japan because he had pot. Oh, that's right. Yes. When I was living in Japan, there were a whole bunch of teachers who were working for my school. Uh-huh. And they all got busted for drugs. And really? it was a major scandal in the oh, wow. in the news. Because a whole bunch of foreigners got busted for drugs, and it was a big old drug ring. And the reason it happened was because one teacher got busted for being too dang loud. The cops found drugs, then went into the the teacher's phone, found all of the text messages with other people, and promptly arrested all of them. Wow. Oh, my God. That must have fed their news cycle for weeks. Oh, yes. Uh, Scandalous foreigners is one of their absolute favorite (laughs) topics over there. (laughs) They have a whole section for it, I bet. Scandalous foreigners. Those yeah, it was not a great year for Nova because it kind of culminated with it collapsing. Mm, oh, my goodness gracious. That is which, crazy. Which is funny because I look back on Nova and the more I look back on Nova, the more I'm embarrassed to have been associated with it because holy crap, what a scam. <laughs> was it really? I know there was like It was jet. such a scam. Oh, my gosh. There was no curriculum whatsoever. They just kind of handed you lessons that were very poorly written, mm-hmm. and you sort of taught it, taught them. By the end, and worse, you were doing repeat lessons because you they didn't have a really clear way to advance people. Right. So people weren't really learning anything. They were just kind of there. <laughs> <laughs> just hanging out in Japan for a while. Yeah. Yeah, people, if they actually got better at English, it wasn't because of Nova. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. That's a, but, that's a tagline right there. It taught me how to actually create my own lessons, though, and it actually made me a much better teacher. Oh, there you go. See, learning on the fly. So I, was, I felt so guilty about just going through the same crap every time. I just started making up my own stuff and teaching my own grammar points and coming up with my own activities. I'm sure your, te- your uh, students probably appreciated it more, too. All right. Last note about PAX East, by the way, which is happening in a couple weeks. And by the way, we're owned by PAX East, so just a disclaimer there. Um PAX East, Nadia and I are going to both be there. You should keep an eye out for us. We're going to be doing a panel. We're going to be playing old Dreamcast games. Yes. Just the other day, I went over to an old friend's house, and I played some Power Stone 2. Mm -hmm. I played some Crazy Taxi. I played Soul Calibur. I played Under Defeat and a bunch of uh, G-Rev shoot-em-ups, and it was a glorious time. The Dreamcast, especially when you're playing it on a CRT, Holds up really well. Yeah, uh, you gotta get that, that like uh, CRT experience, especially. I used to go around with the stupid uh, VMU. Is that what it was called? The um, mm. little. Yeah, I used mm. to have a chow on there. And I used to carry Aww. it around. It was cute. Yeah. yeah, it looks really good, especially on a good CRT. It's really surprising because I've gotten so used to how bad it looks on an HD TV. Oh yeah, well everything uh, that's polygon and retro looks terrible on an HD TV. 
Yeah, but on a CRT, it looks fine. So come and hang out and watch us do that. Mike is also doing a panel about what went wrong with Fallout 76, which I'm sure Bethesda will love. And <laughs> Mike is also doing a panel about the chronology of Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Mike and Nadia are both going to be on a panel for Retronauts. Our old yes. pal, Jeremy Parrish. And talking about Holly wrong, like the worst Hollywood aspects in games. Like, I'm not entirely sure what the the topic is. Uh, it is basically uh, kind of a, a movie in a movie games uh, panel. Um, I can't remember the specifics off the top of my head because I have to re- relook at my notes. But uh, basically, you can't go wrong when you're talking about what Hollywood has done to screw up games. Uh, I'm really hoping that Detective Pikachu reverses that. <laughs> All right, I'm going to continue on to the next segment where we talk about The Witcher 3 with Katie, so don't go away. Okay, continuing on with our Top 25 RPG Countdown, number three on our Top 25 RPG list, the top three. Number three is The Witcher 3, which I guess is appropriate, by CD Projekt. And joining me to talk about this wonderful, uh, probably the game of the generation, this wonderful gem of an RPG is Katie McCarthy, who uh, is maybe the other big Witcher 3 fan on the staff. I don't know if there's anybody else on the staff who likes Witcher 3. Well, it's Huron. Huron loves Witcher 3. He's, like, played through it multiple times, too, I think, which I think is crazy. Like, I, I love Witcher 3, but I just kind of, like hop back in on my old save i'm not gonna go through everything again you know that's what i used to do when i was in high school where i would just run mm. through an rpg uh, a dozen times or more i know i did that with final fantasy 8 so maybe that's what he did with witcher 3 yeah i definitely did that like i think i talked about on the kingdom hearts episode that's what i did with kingdom hearts like the original is i just played it over and over again like uh, not quite speed running you know but definitely trying to get all i could out of it because you know with rpgs they're so long and there's like so much there to offer and you know when the experience is over you almost don't want to be done sometimes they're just like i'm just gonna go through it again why not well witcher 3 is probably the most beloved game of this generation i think it's fair to say maybe only dark souls has a similar level of passion uh, and complete lack of cynicism around it though there is more cynicism around dark souls than perhaps around witcher 3 it's uh, it's quite a remarkable uh, feat for a game to come out these days and basically have a 100 percent approval rating i see people who grumble that they find the witcher 3 boring but they tend to keep their criticism kind of muted because it's more of a it doesn't really speak to me versus here are some like real tangible negative qualities that i want to point out Maybe the combat, I don't know. But uh, The Witcher 3 came out in early 2015, which was when this podcast was going. And maybe if you could go all the way back to around the time that this game came out, you might be able to find an episode about it. At the time, I was supposed to review it, but I did not because I think I was on a trip or something. And so Mike ended up reviewing it. I started to play it, but never got very far into it until much, much later. And that was when, as I got further and further into it, I I started to realize, oh my god, this is actually an absolutely incredible RPG. And I've always been wanting to kind of sit down and write something really in-depth about it. But perhaps perhaps, uh, with this Top 25 RPG countdown, I can do that. Katie, what what was your initial experience with The Witcher 3? Uh, Like you, I did not play it in 2015. I think I started it in 2016 and I had gotten it on sale for like 
30 bucks or something on Black Friday. And, like, I, it's, like, one of the few games I own physically for PS4. Like, I don't really buy physical games anymore. So, it's, like, Ultra, I guess, has just been floating around. And when I started playing it, it's been, like, one of those games that I just kind of slowly played for a couple of years. Like, I finished it, I want to say, either late 2017 or early 2018. And I remember that being a big deal for me because I was like, wow, I've been playing this game for over 100 hours over time, like, throughout my career in games journalism, pretty much, where... I would start it, and I get distracted by a game I had to play for work, and then I go back to it, and it was always kind of like my fun game, my, like my comfort game. So when I beat the campaign, it was like, oh, I guess I'm kind of done. But then there's the DLC, so I wasn't really done. Yeah, I I've just kind of had this on and off, I guess, relationship with The Witcher Three, and there's always this weird moment when I go back to it of feeling like, oh, I don't know, I don't remember how to play this game at all, and I'd have to like kind of feel it out for like an hour. But then I'd fall back into it so easily. And it was surprisingly like really easy to go back to besides that like one hour fumbling around with the combat and stuff. But yeah, I finished it late or early 2018. I finished Hearts of Stone like pretty quickly after that. And I still haven't finished Blood and Wine. That's like the DLC expansion I have not earnestly tackled because I didn't find the story as engaging as Hearts of Stone. But I've heard the ending's really good, so eventually I'm going to go back to it. But yeah, I also have had a very long, I guess, relationship playing Witcher 3. Yeah, I'm still playing the Hearts of Stone DLC. I finally finished the main campaign last uh, at the end of last year, so like in December. Mm-hmm. So, And that just really reinforced to me how much I really enjoyed The Witcher 3. I, I think it is a masterfully made game. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the kind of the history of the game um so they're based on polish novels of the same name um the author forgive me if i'm <laughs> kind of end up mangling their name a little bit it's mm-hmm. andrea sapkowski did i do that wrong did i do that, that totally wrong right <laughs> seems sapkowski seems a little older um and they seem like to be a little bit of a video game skeptic i know that they've had tiffs with the author of metro who is a committed gamer <laughs> Yeah, because he writes the Metro games too, right? The Metro author? I think he's like yes. involved in that process. He's like all in. I think Heron also interviewed him too. But yes, yeah. he did. Yeah, and uh, Subkowski uh, has pretty much said, yeah, I don't, I didn't think they would make a lot of money. And so I co- took kind of a bad deal. And then they made a lot of money. And I decided that I wanted <laughs> more money, which, hey, I don't blame them. Uh, the creative work that you created is ultra successful and has a gigantic fan base. But at the same time, you're also still benefiting from it because I'm sure plenty of people have picked up the novels just based on the strength of the video game. Yeah, I've I own them or I've owned some of them, like the first three in the series, but I have not dove in. I think they're on sale on Kindle around when I got my Kindle. So I was like, I'm going to get these and start reading the Witcher novels. But whenever I try to read fantasy, I just get really sleepy because they're kind of boring. Yeah, that's how it is with fiction in general for me these days. I think... Uh, reading so much Reddit and spending so much time on my smartphone has completely ruined my ability to enjoy fiction, and it really sucks. Uh, yeah, you gotta get a Kindle. Honestly, getting a Kindle is what helped me like fall back into reading a lot. Yeah, I read, but I mostly read nonfiction. But mm. so yeah, there were various attempts to turn The Witcher into a series, uh, like in the mid '90s, for example, and it finally culminated in it being released in 2004, P- seven for PC. And Nadia likes to tell this story about being i think at e3 or something and cd project being kind of in the back corner everybody kind of ignored this janky weird pc game that came out that 
had these uh, cards that, well, well, it really leaned into the sexy element, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. in the initial games. And then uh, Witcher 2 came out in 2011 and raised and really raised the profile of the series, but it was still mostly a PC RPG, so it still had a fairly hardcore niche in, in some ways. I would put it in this a lot of people i think we're putting into the same category as say the gothic series and it initially didn't really garner a huge following even when it came out on xbox 360 because it was still perceived to be a pc game though it got more and more into the public eye did you ever get around to playing witcher 2 katie no i've always wanted to go since i love witcher 3 so much i really want to go back and play both the original games but also hearing they're a little janky i've heard 2 is pretty good like on its own merits but I do want to go back one day, but it's, I also, I don't know. Do I really want to go back? Like, I don't know. There's so many games. I would hold my attention. Yeah. The original Witcher is really janky and hard to go back to, though I'm sure you could find some excellent mods online. Uh, Witcher 2, you can get, I believe, an Xbox One X enhanced version, um, backward compatibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. That seems like the way to go, probably. That does. And the other thing is Witcher 1, 2, and 3 tell a fairly linear story. Uh, Witcher 3 takes on a lot of the story threads of Witcher 2 and ultimately resolves them. So it's really fun, I think, if you're invested in the story of Witcher 3 to go back to Witcher 2 in particular and see a lot of the characters uh, like the Spy Master and and the various trysts that Geralt has had over the years and things like that. When Witcher 2 came out, I kept kind of one eye on it. I played it some. I didn't play it a huge amount. uh, But I was nevertheless pretty interested in The Witcher 3 when it was getting promoted. I remember that there was a fair amount of interest around it, but it wasn't getting the same attention as, say, a Fallout or a Mass Effect or that kind of game. But when it came out, uh, word of mouth and and things like that really kind of propelled it. And it was really helped, I think, by the fact that it was console first. Not only that, but it borrowed a lot of things from Dark Souls and Red Dead Redemption and Zelda. And you can really kind of see it in the way that it handles things like boss fights, which uh, feel really big and really intense, the the wild hunts that you go on, uh, the way that it realizes its open world, I think really spoke to kind of mainstream audiences in the ways that previous games didn't. Yeah, I, I I definitely see the Red Dead Redemption comparisons in The Witcher 3, and I feel like maybe not launch because the inventory system was pretty rough, but mm. it did feel more streamlined for a console audience eventually, because I know there's like a lot of problems at launch with the inventory is horrible to manage, apparently. And that was kind of what made me not want to dive into it despite all the acclaim i was like well maybe i'll just like wait until it's on sale and then i got on sale and by that point they had patched it so much that it was a way better game than at launch which i guess is like a testament to this new like way that developers approach games where it's launch is not going gold isn't the same as it used to be Okay, this is the part where we kind of jump into spoilers. Uh, We are going to talk about how the story plays out and everything. We're going to talk about the plot twists because I I think that it's useful to be able to really dive into why this uh, narrative works. So if you're not interested in spoilers, maybe this is the part where you move on and you play this wonderful RPG that has this amazing story but okay so the basic story of the witcher 3 is i mean how would you describe it katie there's a lot going on in this particular story yeah Uh, it's like hard to just boil i mean i guess like the thing is like you're all you're trying to find yennefer 
Mm-hmm. And you're also trying to find Siri because at the beginning of the game, they both kind of go off and, well, yeah, Siri's on the run, basically, from the Wild Hunt, who are, like, the the main villains uh, of this game. Yeah. And then Yennefer's, like, your long-lost storied love that you didn't remember, apparently, but then you now remember her. But you're, there's also, like, this romance, Brit, or I guess, I guess, fork in the road of, like, Triss or... Yennefer or both, but then they both dump you if you do both. So it's like you don't date both, which I which I like that choice. Yeah, don't date both of them because it's an unhappy ending. Yeah, the major plot points I suppose would be there are countries at war. Uh, so true. there's yeah. the I think the Nilfgaardian Empire and then mm-hmm. another kingdom that are also at war with them. Uh, there's a king who is really kind of an autocratic jerk. And he is persecuting all of the mages and the non-humans. And then Ciri is being, who is kind of, I don't know, Geralt's surrogate daughter. Like, she's not a witcher, but she has special abilities. And she was mm-hmm. raised at the headquarters of the witchers, Kaer Morin. Uh, she is on the run from the Wild Hunt, which are these, like, extra-dimensional elves who can teleport everywhere and are constantly chasing you and are... Well, they look like Skeletor, Darth Vader, or something like that. Yeah, They're very menacing. (laughs) But yeah, I I would say that one of the core themes are kind of like relationships. Because you see, like, Geralt has that sort of father-daughter relationship with Ciri. And so, like, one of the major, major threads of the game is, can you kind of help Ciri realize her own strength and her own potential and leave the nest a little bit and mature and grow up and then be able to make the decision she needs to survive. There are like uh, quests like the Bloody Baron and scenes from marriage, which are about, well, marriages that are really not healthy at all in like kind of horrible ways. There are like various character beats like Lambert talking about his relationship with his father. There are various romances. Uh, Can you think of any other core themes, Katie? I mean, yeah, I feel like so much of The Witcher 3 is just about both relationships, but also, like, humanity, because Geralt is, like, this monster, basically, and people treat him as such a lot of the time. But so it's also about him, like, coming to terms with this, like, if he has humanity, and, like, what that means, and what love means, too, because he's, like, split between these two women, and also his, like, fatherly, like, affection for Ciri, who's basically, like, his daughter, essentially, even though she has a dad who's also pretty shitty. But yeah, I'd, I'd say those are pretty much the core themes, and what I love about The Witcher 3 is you feel them in, like, every little side quest and stuff. In the beginning, or around the White Orchard area, like, people always bring up that quest where you go, like, that lady comes up to you and is like, some man borrowed my pan, and, like, they never gave it back. So, like, Geralt, like, breaks into this shed where this man lives, and then you find the man dead, and you find, like, little, like, hints of what happened to him. And you f- then you find the pan and you can return to the woman and it's like such a... And then like, later that the person that murdered that guy like comes into the picture in a different side quest. There's like so many quests that are dealing with how people, like poorer people, like deal with war and like what that means for like also living in a society where it's not just humans, there's like monsters around and there's like different races of like with like elves and everything and there's like a lot going on and it does a really great job of making you feel like you are where you're like Geralt is kind of like this not he's not like a human in the society I guess if that makes sense like he is kind of this outsider look yeah he's like an outsider looking in but he's also like helping people or like also demanding money from them because like that's his job or whatever 
so you, it's kind of like you are, it's, it's a really good perspective, I guess, as the player, because you're also embodying this outsider perspective. You're looking into, like, these really, like, poor towns, these, like, like people that are dealing with death all around them. Like, there's so many quests that just deal with death. I'd say death is, like, another big, I wouldn't maybe call it a theme, it's just, like, always present. Like, there's just death everywhere, whether it's, like, from, like, sicknesses or just you know monsters like oh i'm gonna go find this person and then it's just they oh they're mauled to death by this like drowner or whatever so there's like so much it's just like a very grim world but it there's also like a lot of hope in it you know it's like you're there's like a lot of quests that are like really like have almost nice endings or you know bittersweet type stuff and i feel like the witcher 3 is really good at balancing both the like really really sad stuff and also the really really like pleasant stuff. Yeah, I think the reason that Witcher 3 resonates with people so much is how well realized its world actually is. Uh, So you can go, it's a really big world. There are multiple continents, there are the islands of Skellige, there um, is kind of the main continent, there's White Orchard, and there are a lot of different places to explore, and especially if you want to get to some of the uh, the best armor pieces and everything, you really do have to explore quite a bit. It has just amazing scenery. Like, it has mm-hmm. really, really gorgeous scenery, especially on the Xbox One X. It's one of those games, along with maybe Red Dead Redemption 2, where when I'm riding my horse, I'm just kind of looking around going, wow, man, they really just nailed this. This is a beautiful, beautiful world that I really just enjoy riding around in yeah and the blood the one thing i like about the blood wine expansion from what i've played of it so far is that new area toussaint is like so pretty it's like so bright and it it just feels so different from like i don't want to call it like drab because i do feel like it's like beautiful scenery but toussaint in particular is like such a like grass is so bright and the like castle town you explore is just like so beautiful and intricate and it's like such a striking difference from like everything else you've seen in the game before that point yeah i previewed blood and wine ages ago and i remember them telling me yeah everything was always kind of grim in the main (laughs) areas so we really wanted to just go with i don't know something a little brighter a little more french and that is yeah it's definitely very french feeling it's like super cute like cobblestone streets and stuff it's like it's so pretty the other thing that i really like about witcher 3's world is that it doesn't really waste a moment. It doesn't really waste a quest. Even the smallest quests always have this little story. Uh, There was one just recently where I was walking around and there's this guy standing around with a cage and he's telling these soldiers that he has this one particular monster and Geralt immediately goes, that's not that particular monster, It's, it's a wyvern. He's like, no, no, it's definitely this kind of monster. And the soldier's going, yeah, yeah you're lying to us. And then of course the monster breaks out and immediately eats the guy and you get to fight the monster. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just a cute little moment that really drives home that Geralt is a witcher and he really knows his stuff. And he knows when somebody is messing around and lying about a monster that's about to eat him. But I, I think that I really like that even though there is a strong gathering component to Witcher 3, uh, you can gather flowers, you can gather materials, you're constantly having to get materials for uh, various armor bits and everything. It doesn't really ever devolve into get five of this to complete that. 
and especially it contrasted really favorably with Dragon Age Inquisition, where all of the side quests were built around kind of lots of fetch quest stuff. And I think a lot of people were disappointed with that. Whereas everybody always says Witcher 3's side quests are amazing and incredibly well realized, incredibly well fleshed out and really have phenomenal hooks into kind of the main arc, right? Where you're, you can totally, these, these options, these quests are totally optional, but if you do them, you have, your actions have major ramifications on the world. And I really like having that kind of freedom to decide just how much, how involved you want to be in the way that things kind of turn out in the world. Yeah. And I think, Another thing Witcher 3 does a good job is like describing or showing you what each type of quest is going to be. Like a beast hunt is always going to like kind of evolve in a similar way, but there's always like a good narrative hook in it of like, oh, this beast took out this person. But you're always going to be like going to the thing, you're going to be using your detective vision and like following the tracks. And then there's going to be like a cool like boss type battle at the end of it. And people, like, people are, like, hard on the combat. I always like the combat, but I also like action RPGs. So, like, where I'm, like, mixed, but it depends on the action RPG. But I think Witcher 3 is a good one, and I always felt like I was, like, I was going into, like, the bestiary and reading, like, the entire entry about the monster. So I was, like, learning about its history, and it was always, like, really interesting to me and being, like, okay, I'm gonna get some stuff so I can brew this, like, oil to put on my sword and all that stuff. And I feel like I was very involved in a cool way. But then there's also stuff where it's like, okay, do I want to just do some not super story heavy content to like level up or like work towards like this armor I want to get? And there's stuff like that too. And it's like really good at like laying out and spreading it out. So there's like always a lot of variety of stuff you could do. If you don't want to just do any track, you could just kind of like roam around and fight monsters too. Like there's like so much just in every little corner, like collectibles and. Like not and it doesn't have audio logs. I think I don't remember having audio logs. So thank not God really. I mean, there are books yeah. that you can read. Yeah, but I think the I think the writing is like really good. So I feel like that doesn't like I I always like collectibles and games that are just like books you can read. I feel like audio logs for some reason annoy me because I'm just like standing there listening to it. And I'm like I just I just want to read it. Like I'd rather just like read like a little weird diary thing or something. So everybody always praises The Witcher Three's writing, and I agree because. I never read codexes or bestiaries or anything like that more anymore because usually the lore is not that interesting to me. But The Witcher 3 is an, ex- is an exception because, as you said, I will be checking into the bestiary to figure out how to kill a particular monster and looking at the oil, and then I'll find myself reading the blurb and going, oh, yeah. wow. Like, this that's is really- interesting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really messed up. Like, in Hearts of Stone, the expansion... I recently fought a monster called the Caretaker, which didn't have a oh, face. Oh, yeah. That's a scary one. It's like a Silent Hill monster. Like, I remember walking into that garden area and being like, what's going on here? This is weird. I was like, what is the deal with this thing? And when I was reading about it, so, like, I immediately wanted to go and read about it because I was going, I, I want to know. And it was summoned from another dimension to be kind of their horrifying butler. <laughs> Yeah, the whole dimensions thing is a, a thing I find really interesting because, like, that's the big thing with Siri, right? Is she can, like, hop through different mm. dimensions and then there's, like, the teaser for cyberpunk or whatever that she mentions at, like, one point in the game, uh, which I think is funny because like, they, cause they announced cyberpunk, like, before... They announced Witcher cyberpunk out, right? in 2013, I think. 
Yeah, it was like so long ago. So it was like funny that there was that teaser because I think people were probably like, oh my god, they mentioned Cyber. It's out soonish, but no, no, no. It's still gonna be a bit. I think there's like so much to mine from The Witcher just beyond, you know, the fantasy, which that's like another thing that I'm surprised, like, why The Witcher 3 hooked me so much is because I don't like vanilla fantasy type stuff. Like, that's not my jam i've always like gravitated more towards sci-fi it's definitely not so, vanilla fantasy though yeah i mean but like i feel like from the outsider's perspective before i like played it i thought it was like a vanilla fantasy type thing like i don't like elder schools i've tried so hard and just cannot get into elder schools and like same with like well, every the, other the fantasy, fantasy of elder scrolls is really generic yeah it's, so generic. it's very D <laughs> driven whereas the witcher has a very polish feeling to it for obvious reasons i hate comparing everything to game of thrones but the very political driven nature of it yeah definitely everything is extremely well realized there's a strong like sense of real uh politique about it especially when you're dealing with dijkstra the uh the spy master and the the rebels and the the king who if you if you depose the king, like there are so many different ways that that story can play out in the way that uh, the two nations end up merging and kind of the best possible situation is that the country that uh, one of your friends is fighting to reinstate is reinstated, but essentially as a puppet state. <laughs> and he's just like, eh, well, that's how it goes, I guess. Uh, th- there's a sense of practicality to the way that things play out. Again, I I don't like to slag on Dragon Age because ultimately I do like Dragon Age uh, a fair amount, but there was always something about the Dragon Age world that felt pretty contrived, whereas perhaps because The Witcher was based on a popular series of books in a well-realized fantasy universe, it never felt contrived in the same way. I, I think another thing that, the, that struck me about The Witcher 3 is that it's really good with humor too and like in light yes. of everything all the dark stuff and going so on, many like, games never do humor well right there's so many like i i feel like that's because i'm really into comedy like let's do like a bunch of comedy podcasts and the witcher 3 is like genuinely funny like there's one scene that's like super insignificant that i remember where they're at Kermorin and Geralt's like eating an apple while like dictating an autopsy and it's just like such a funny scene of him like he's not doing the autopsy but i'm the one directing like what is going on in the autopsy and it's it's so funny and there's just like so many like little scenes like that that play with like Geralt's kind of like aloofness or his like sarcastic personality and also like the in hearts of stone there's that whole quest where you like you're possessed by i can't remember the Oh. ghost's name and you're like eldrick walking Baron, around. somebody yeah yeah and you're like walking around with your like hands on your hips and just being like an idiot and it's it's really funny and i feel like the witcher 3 is like so good with humor and it trades that with also like really good emotional beats like the bloody baron quest which is you know obviously like the big thing that everyone brings up when they talk about witcher 3 yeah i was talking about in the newsletter which by the way you should subscribe to the newsletter if you haven't already uh the scenes from a scenes from a marriage which is a hearts of stone quest which has a lot of similarities to the bloody baron quest and it works so extremely well not just because of the writing but because of the voice acting uh, especially the uh, the actress who plays Iris is really, really good in that one. And it really drives home the 
kind of the degradation of this marriage. There's a strong kind of supernatural component to it. But there's also when she says that she feels nothing toward her husband, it really is kind of a dagger to the heart that is just so extremely well delivered. Uh, there's really strong imagery, like when you <laughs> when you finally get up to her bedroom and you find her uh, kind of mummified corpse in bed, and you have the, the, the cat and the dog uh, walking you through what happened. Uh, also, again, very well acted. Uh, the the scenery around you, the house, the manor, the ruined garden, the caretaker is just really, really evocative and incredibly well done and really brings you into the moment. And you can totally forget that really you're not actually doing a lot. You're just kind of collecting some items, putting them into place, and then watching things play out. But nevertheless, there are interesting story beats that are happening, interesting decisions to make, uh, some really like s- solid battles. And to me, that's just how you make a really great quest. Like anybody who wants to study how to make an outstanding quest uh, should study The Witcher 3 because it's funny, like, it is so much more than the sum of its parts in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you mentioned that whole, like, walking through that mansion scene, and I feel like Hearts of Stone, that DLC in particular, it's kind of like the dis- like, I feel like it's every- all the great parts of The Witcher 3 kind of distilled into, like, a tight, like, 10 to 12 hour campaign thing. Like, there's, like, amazing humor, there's, like, really heart-wrenching quests with that whole, like, scenes from a marriage quest- and, like, there's, like, some pretty good, like, boss battles in that, too. Like, we were talking earlier. There's a heist. Yeah, there's just so much crazy. Yeah, like, it's it's really, like, I love Hearts of Stone. Like, I used to say that it's uh, it's better than, like, the base, cam- base campaign. And I don't know if that's, like, completely true. Or it might be, like, a little bit. I kind of, like, I think they're both. The Witcher I think, 3 as, I think The Witcher like, 3 has thing. scope. And I think Hearts of yeah. Stone has is a little more intimate. Because, yeah, it's more tight, yeah. And it's whimsical, too, because you are dealing with genies, and you're mm-hmm. dealing with, like, the first thing you do is fight a frog in the sewers that used to be a mm-hmm. prince, and they're, they're really going for kind of an Arabian Nights-type vibe, which I think mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. Yeah, like, and I was kind of, I remember going into that DLC being a little disappointed, because I expected to be like this new area for some reason and i was like oh it's not a new it's like i mean it starts you out in a new area and then you're only there for a little bit yeah it's like a little it's like slightly expanded and i remember being like initially disappointed by that but i feel like it kind of recontextualized areas i already knew and stuff in an interesting way i felt bad in that quite uh in that dlc because i was pretty committed to tris and Mm. i wanted to make sure that i stayed (laughs) committed to tris which I'll get into that in a, a moment. But I totally had sex with uh, Shani on the boat. <laughs> Same, yeah. That's like what you do, you know? It's like you get that offer and you're like, well, I'm here, you know? I'm not going to say no. <laughs> and which, by the way, can I just say that Witcher 3's sex scenes actually work? Like, Yeah, they're good. It's like the rare game that has like okay sex scenes, which is yeah. astounding. There's, it's, it doesn't feel kind of like, ooh, boobies in the same way that maybe mm. Mass Effect is. It it actually does a really good job of driving home like the sexual tension between Geralt and whoever he's with, where you're just kind of like, they work their way up to it, as it were, mm. right? Just in Hearts of Stone, that entire wedding, where you're, what, 
like possessed with the ghost and everything and he's kind of teasing shawnee and then gerald's kind of teasing shawnee and then she's kind of teasing you and it just so expertly works its way up into the scene in the boat that by the time you get to that moment you're like yes i want gerald and shawnee to have sex god damn it it's been working toward this for like an hour yeah, it's it's like I think the and that's like another thing The Witcher Three does right is like it kind of embraces like hookups in addition to like your like storied love or whatever. So there's like the two main romances, but you can also hook up with like prostitutes, which I only did like once because I was like, oh, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, but then there's like also like the story quests. Like I can't remember her name, the other sorceress woman, who you can also kill after that quest. Which oh, is kind of are horrible. you talking about the one who becomes the owl? Yeah, yeah, the blonde girl. I can't. She's from Witcher Two, right? I think she's from Witcher Two. Yeah, she's like yeah. she's like bit, she's like been in past Witcher games, is what they set it up as. But yeah, you can like sleep with her, and then she like I think she steals your clothes or something. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what how that works out, but yeah, you like confront her over something like the thing you're both investigating. I made the wrong decision and did not realize it, and then it initiated me into, like, a boss fight with her, and then I had to kill her, and it felt horrible. That was, like, the one time in the game I was like, that sucked. I wish I didn't, like, I just slept with this woman. I, like, chose the wrong decision here, because I wasn't, I didn't know it was gonna lead me into a boss fight to kill her. Uh, but she, I think she dies later on no matter what, so she's gonna be dead in one way or another, which is kind of sad. There's also a mage, uh, you might be thinking of this particular mage, where she is going to go and conf- and confront the crazy king who is persecuting all the mages. That might be it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. And if you mess up, like, she will come after you and you have to fight her and kill her. And if you make another bad decision, she will just go off and confront the king and then you'll find her body strung up yeah, in the town uh, yeah, square. Yeah, that's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's, like, the town square one. Because I remember seeing that on YouTube and her. I was like, whoa. There are ways to save her. So I I looked it up in the guide because I cannot stand letting characters die if if I don't have to. So I feel like Witcher 3 is the one game where I did not look at any guides because I'm usually like that too where I'm like, I want to get the best ending possible. I want to end up with this person. Like I get like super into it. But I couldn't deal with with screwing up Siri's story. Yeah, I guess that's true. I feel like I I got lucky. I got a pretty okay ending, I think. Uh, But yeah, Witcher 3, I was just kind of like, I'm just going to see you where my choices take me. I'm not gonna get super... The only thing is, like, I, I was like, I'm choosing Yennefer over Triss. That was kind of, like, the only, like, thing, and I Yennefer chose was a good options. choice. Yeah. I really liked the entire sequence where you're in the garden, and you get the mask for the first time, and th- this is the first time it really drove home to me that The Witcher is really outstandingly good at doing romances, because... I just really enjoyed that particular sequence. And I think it was that sequence that really put me in the shoes of Geralt for the first time. Because up until that point, I had always felt really disconnected with Geralt. I didn't really feel anything toward him. And that was making Mm. it hard for me to really get into The Witcher 3, even though I really appreciate it. And then so from that moment, when Geralt is decides that he wants to be with Triss and everything, and I'm pretty sure you have sex... And I'm like, okay, I'm in on this game. And also, I'm wearing this wolf mask for the rest of the game, and it's pretty rad. So the reason I really like that romance is not just because it's well-written, but because it's resolved relatively early. And because it's resolved relatively early, it means that there is a pretty good 
love triangle going on between you and Tris and Yennefer, where it's not like, oh, who do I just choose? Who do I just... It's, no, I've chosen one. Mm-hmm. And here's this other... Uh, and now here's Yennefer being really upset by my choice. And you feel like the tension with, with that for the rest of the game. And it really works. It really, really does. And I think other RPGs should definitely take that into consideration because so many games resolve the romance at the end of the game, right? Like Mass Effect 2 mm-hmm. did that. And, or Mass Effect 1 did that. And so because of that, it's like, okay, well, it feels perfunctory. Yep, oh, we're in a relationship now, I guess, whatever. Uh, the only reason that Mass Effect works so well is that it picks up the romance threads again in the sequel. And so it feels a lot more fleshed out, as it were. Yeah, that's like a good point with it, like you feeling regret almost in turning to, because I remember like turning down Triss and it was like before she was going to sail to Skellige, I think. And it was when you're still in Velen's. And, like, she asked you, like, a question about, like, if you're going to be together. And I was pretty much just like, nah, sorry. <laughs> like, let's just be friends. And it just, be like, seeing her really sad, I was like, oh, I can't feel bad. Because, like, she's cute, too. And she's super sweet. And she's technically, I guess, had a longer relationship with Geralt throughout the games, at least. Because Yennefer, I think, only came into the picture in two. Yeah, and you settled so, down with Triss at the end. So, yeah. When she, like, talks about getting, I, I think she signs up to be the mage for, like, a royal court. And mm-hmm. she talks about getting a house and having Geralt live with her. And you, it's nice because you can yeah. feel the story finally winding down after three games. Uh, as for Yennefer, she was extremely frosty to me for the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, like, she She has some, like, there's, I, I think the scene where you, like, solidify it is, like, this really nice scene where you're, like, up on this, like, cliff on the ship. And you can, like, kiss her there. I don't think you have sex there, but it's, like... It's a very sweet scene of, like, her being really vulnerable. She's, like, had definitely has a wall up, even, like, early in the game when you're still sort of a couple before she runs off. Yeah, she, like, I feel like she, her arc is really interesting. She's definitely, like, a very serious-minded woman. And she's, like, definitely a mother figure to Siri, where I feel like Triss is definitely more sisterly, almost. So maybe that's kind of why I wanted to go for Yennefer more, as it felt more, oh, like, she's, like a mother to Siri because they're both, you know, magical and stuff. Yeah. I I like Yennefer a lot. I like Yennefer and Triss. I I think they're... I I like Triss as a character a lot. It was definitely a hard choice, but I was like, I'm going to go with Yennefer. Yennefer, Triss, and Siri. like a lot of the women in the game are extremely well-realized and well-sketched out and interesting and feel like they have agency, even though technically they aren't the main characters as it were and in fact i would almost go as far as to say that siri is the real star of witcher 3 even though mm. you are playing through the eyes of Geralt. yeah I, i'd love to see another witcher with siri because like the like bits he do play is her and like later on when she's like pretty much like your partner in crime and whatnot like i really like her like she's like a fun character to be around she's not like snarky like a lot of annoying video game characters but she's also strong and like has weaknesses and is trying to figure like her shit out you know and, like, by the end of my campaign, she had went off to become the queen of Empress. That was I it. thought yeah, she yeah, became yeah. a witcher in your story, in your playthrough. No, no, no. She became the empress of mine. And I was, like, bummed because I wanted her to become a witcher. Uh, that was, like, what I See, I wanted her to be the empress because I always figured that being a witcher, even though you have freedom, it's a really bad life. Because, mm. as kind of described by Lambert, like, you're basically hanging out in sewers, 
fighting monsters. You never know when ho- like horrible things happen to witchers. I uh, guess. I got I the guess, I got yeah. the mastercrafted feline armor. And there's a really mm-hmm. dark storyline at one point when you're doing one of the quests to get a piece of the armor or a, a diagram for the armor, I should say. And it's a witcher who was captured by like a scientist and basically forcibly possessed by a demon. And you have to fight this horrifying demonic possessed witcher thing. And it's, it's a pretty dark story. And so that story was always sticking my mind when it came to the idea of Siri becoming a witcher. It's not a fun mm. life. Yeah, I guess that's true. I kind of just always saw her as like fiercely independent, you know, mm. and I kind of saw her as always doing her own thing. And she wanted to be a witcher. That was kind of like what she was working towards. So like I, I was even like mad to, the, or I was mean to the like king when he like tried to pay me for bringing Siri back. I was like, I'm but that's not how you become emperor. <laughs> yeah, and then she ended up becoming like they. I remember them like riding into White Orchard, and I was like, oh no, I fucked up. Like I was like, I knew it. Uh, and then she was like, yeah, I'm gonna go. Bye. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that so the final battle. It's it's a good final battle. Really satisfying to fight the king of the wild hunt and it's a duel rather than him becoming a god or whatever and i i like a good duel the real ending is that final sequence during the winter where you go hunting for that one last time with siri there's so much sadness pervading it because you know that the two of them are going to split up soon and sure enough like you see the the empire coming to to collect her and you're like no siri Geralt, oh that's so sad right like i don't often have a lot of emotion when i'm playing a video game story or anything like that but uh i i was moved by the end of that story it was really like really well 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 done yeah and i think it's like another point where like the voice acting does a lot like i think all the main characters in that game were like really excellent voice actors and you know i mean the writing's good but also i feel like the acting really does elevate it in a way that like I would probably only compare to, like, Red Dead Redemption 2, like, acting-wise. Like, it's, like, really excellent. So let's talk about the best moments of Witcher 3. I think we touched on a lot of them. We talked about some of the best quests, like the Bloody Baron and the scenes from a marriage. Uh, We talked about kind of the dating sequences. I think the conclusion to uh, assass- uh, for the very long sequence of quests to, to assassinate Radovid are, is extremely satisfying, uh, not the least because it wraps up uh, storylines that go back to Witcher 2 with Dijkstra and that everything and uh, the one mage from Witcher 2 whose name I can't remember who but turns into an owl or whatever uh, the political machinations are really satisfying during that entire quest line I felt great when it finally uh, concluded and we trapped the king and finished him off and then decided how things were going to play out uh, that was great a smaller moment for me is getting an entire set of mastercrafted armor because you have to work so hard to get mm. that friggin' set of Mastercrafted armor. You have to get all of the different uh, different diagrams. You have to go and collect all of the items, though usually you have a lot of items on you already. You have to spend a humongous amount of money to get it. But when you finally get that Mastercrafted armor, it looks so good on you. Oh my god. And then there's Grand Mastercrafted armor in uh, Blood and Wine, so... Uh, and and it really, I don't know if it's the strongest possible stuff uh, armor set that you can get in terms of investment, but I I don't care. It looks cool. 
Uh, what about you, Katie? <laughs> Is there like a best moment that we haven't really touched on? I feel like I kind of touched on all my favorite moments, honestly. I, I do feel like there's just like, just, you know, just small. Like, I remember one scene really particularly. I, I think it's like called Possession. And it's like you're on this quest to find series. It's like a part of the Skellig uh, stuff, I think, from what I remember. And there's like, I remember this like really clear moment, like towards the end of the quest, where like you're supposed to trust this one person and they like run into this house, the house you're in with a baby. And then you're supposed to like throw a baby into the oven, but it's like, are you gonna trust them and throw the baby into the oven that you just started? Or are you gonna like hold, give the baby to back to the people you're supposed to give it to? And I remember throwing it in the oven and just being like, did I just kill a baby? And Geralt feeling really bad about it, but it's able to, like, his, like, grief in, like, doing this horrible thing is able to, like, evoke or bring out the this hymn that he's, like, supposed to slay or whatever. So it's like this, but then it turns out, like, oh, this was all set up. They had, like, organized this so they would not, they would catch the baby. So it's like the baby didn't actually get thrown in the oven or whatever. But they're, like, trying to make Geralt feel bad so that they, they can bring out this, like, monster that they needed to take out or whatever. And I remember that quest, like, pretty clearly because it was, like, right when I had gone back to The Witcher 3, I think, like, my second time after taking a long break from it. And that being, like, such a good quest to, like, pull me back into me, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, why I really like The Witcher 3. It's just, like, there's hard decisions you're making. Like, I think... The Witcher 3 does choice-based gameplay in a way that, uh, still unlike anything else I've really seen, like, there's, like, Telltale games and, like, adventure games where it's, like, all choice-like driven, but The Witcher 3 feels really impactful, and it just feels like quests can go any number of ways, and I, and it's not just, like, about, like, killing NPCs like you do in, like, Bethesda games, you know? It's, like, it feels like you're actually making moral choices, and, like, hard moral choices, like, they're not, like, easy, like, it's, there's rarely, like, an easy decision, like, even just, like, turning down Triss, it's, like, I feel really bad about this, you know, but, you know, like, Jennifer's my love, so it's, I, I, I think there's just, like, a lot of, like, really small moments in that game that I can't, like, really point at one in particular, rather than, it's just, there's just, like, a lot of great quests in that game, it's just, like, impossible to just really handpick them, almost. Yeah, some incredible emotional investment in it. And I don't even think the combat is that bad. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I've never under... Like, maybe it was bad at launch or something, but I always have, like, a good time with the combat. Like, I would just yeah. go, like, on hunts, you know? Like, I go on beast hunts. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get some oils, and I'm gonna go hunt these, like, werewolf things or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just enough of an amount of skill with the parrying uh, investigation and uh, role-playing when it comes to putting applying the oils and finding the right potions to apply for yourself mm -hmm. and i mean you feel pretty cool when you're fighting when you stand off against a group of soldiers and then you set them on fire and you're throwing bombs at them and you're rolling around and you're parrying them there's a cinematic quality to it i don't like using mm -hmm. that word but <laughs> it, it works extremely well but so uh, the legacy of Witcher 3, um, I have here probably the most beloved game of the generation. I think it's the game of the generation. What do you think? Uh, yeah, Katie? for sure. Like, I mean, I would say the only thing it goes up against is like probably Red Dead Redemption 2 for me, but I also feel like that game's so polarizing. Like there's people that really don't like that game, you know? And it does have like some problems in like mission design. So like 
I don't know if I would also. I'd say it's like up there for like one of the best games of the generation. I think a lot of people might say Bloodborne. Uh, <laughs> I don't I, know. Like, I think Bloodborne is a pretty clear contender, but yeah, it's definitely up there. But I don't know if I'd say it's the game. Like I don't. I don't see Bloodborne's influence in like every little thing like I do in Witcher Three, where like pretty mm. much every open world game you play now is gonna start in like a white orchard like area. You know, it's like it's almost and like so many developers now are like citing the witcher 3 as like yeah we like play a lot of the witcher 3 for like quest design because it's like it's like the gold standard now yeah even friggin assassin's creed 2 borrowed poorly uh from the witcher 3 and i mean okay the assassin's creed odyssey is not a bad game by any stretch of the imagination but they really screwed up that dlc when they put you into uh forced oh, yeah, you into forced a- in the straight relationship yeah yeah it's like Eh, like maybe don't do that but also like i feel like the like odyssey took the wrong lessons where it was just like too much you know they're just throwing so much in there which is also like what witcher does but the witcher 3 does it in a way where it's all legible you know it's not overwhelming ever it's like it's really clearly designated and it's all enticing and if you don't like one activity you could just ignore it and odyssey's problem is it's just like you can also ignore a lot of it but there's just like so much and the main story is just bad. It's just so bad. The side quests are pretty good, and that's like where I was like hooked on that game. It's like I like exploring and doing these weird side quests. But man, that main story is awful. It's so bad. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that uh, The Witcher Three propelled CD Projekt into the top ranks of RPG development and mm. um, honestly game development in general. Uh, I don't think there are many studios that are kind of in the same. A stratosphere as CD Projekt at this point. Um, I We've talked about on this podcast how they basically out BioWare'd BioWare. <laughs> uh, they've really taken BioWare's place in the top, top, top ranks of RPG development. But uh, as for final thoughts, uh, Witcher 3, definitely my game of the generation, one of my favorite games of all time. Um, I'm still in, I'm at the end of Hearts of Stone. I still got Blood and Wine to play. And it's the game that I go back to whenever I'm kind of between games, and every time I go back, I'm a little more impressed. It is, if you haven't played it, and if you've been listening to this podcast and you haven't played it, congratulations, you've been spoiled like crazy. But <laughs> Why are you listening? <laughs> but if you haven't played it, it's so good. It is really, really, really good, and I hope that the last 45 minutes have kind of explained why. Do you have anything else do you want to add, Katie? No, it's fine. I was, like, looking through, like, I had searched my Twitter handle and, like, The Witcher 3, because I was trying to find this one screenshot to show you of, like, my Geralt, because I had him wearing very tiny glasses, which I thought <laughs> were very funny, but I couldn't find it. But, like, I, I I had apparently at one point tweeted, like, to the people who think The Witcher 3 is overrated, you're a dumbass who can't be trusted, and I honestly, like, I'm like, yeah, I still kind of feel that. Like, if you don't like the witcher 3 or don't see like the quality in it it's like what what is wrong with you like it's just so good like there's no denying i guess the comments one thing are like i get it if you're not into that like whatever but i feel like the storytelling and the character building and the world building like it's like the one of the greatest it's arguably the greatest open world ever made it's it's just like i don't think we're talking we'll be talking about many games this generation the way we're going to be talking about the witcher 3 in the future you know it's definitely the game of the generation like hands down like there's no questioning that and i i think it's gonna we're gonna see more of its influence in like pretty much any rpg from here on out all 
All right, that's Witcher 3, number three in our top 25 RPG countdown. Thanks to Katie for coming on the show, and let's continue on to the mailbag. Okay, I'm back with Nadia, and last week, Nadia, we talked about the best RPG plot twists in honor of Final Fantasy VI, which was number four on our Top 25 RPG Countdown. And you guys had a lot of comments on this one. You were sharing your favorite RPG plot twists, so let's go through it really quickly. Uh, Victoria Hunter says, I think one of my favorite twists is Shki's identity in The World Ends With You. It's not the biggest per se, but it's incredibly personal and has hints of a deeper discussion about body dysmorphia. I'm also totally down for whatever a Tales game's twist is. Wow, there's actually a whole other world. I didn't see that coming. It's always foreshadowed to hell, and everyone spends half an hour talking about how this can't be, or I thought this was just a legend. It's JRPG (laughs) comfort food, and I love it. Yes, I agree. I love the big plot twist with Shiki's identity. So you've you've played The World Ends With You. Yes, but it was a long time ago. Okay. So... Uh, spoiler alert, if you want to fast forward like 30 seconds, I'll give you a second. Okay. So in The World Ends With You, when you meet Shiki, she is kind of a Shibuya girl. Um, she's going for that really kind of ditzy kind of attitude. She's she's mm-hmm. affecting it. And it turns out that was her friend. And mm-hmm. she took on the form of her friend because she always admired her. And thought she was better. And she herself was kind of a quiet, mousy girl. Right. And she kind of comes to grips with the realization that, in fact, her friend was equally self-conscious and unhappy, looks aren't everything, and perhaps a fairly valuable lesson uh, to be told. It, it, It took me off guard, and I was really happy about it. Yeah, I think um, that's a very Persona 4 lesson, too, isn't it? With uh, Chie and... uh... And uh, her friend, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Yeah, I totally agree. We also talked about Final Fantasy VI, as I already mentioned. Um, Dolrich242 really hates Final Fantasy VI. There's like a huge <laughs> block of text about how they really hate it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I love it. Yeah. I don't I, to tell you. I don't know what else to say to you. Uh, yeah, they, they go on at some length about how they just don't get it, and Final Fantasy VI is overrated. I guess there's somebody, there's always somebody out there, but... I, I don't know. I, I really look at Final Fantasy VI as just peak square on the uh, Super Nintendo. Yeah, um, it is honestly a game I go back to every once in a while, and I, I play it, and I really enjoy it. I still enjoy it, and uh, I even though I, I fully admit it has some flaws, like uh, the fact that you can't uh, that your party members who aren't who you aren't using don't level up alongside you. Uh, that's a real pain in the butt. I was telling Cat before we recorded actually, uh, I got stuck in Cyan's dream with a loser party that I was just trying to build up for the end of the game. And you can't leave that area. And the boss is a real asshole. Uh, You have to beat him in some really arbitrary, complicated way. And all my good espers were stuck back on the airship. So I was screwed royally. But I just sat there like a moron and ground until I finally finally had enough power and understanding how to beat frickin' Rexol. So (laughs) that's my story. Uh, And that is why I totally acknowledge... Final Fantasy VI isn't perfect, but goddamn, it's close. My conversation, our conversation inspired me to start playing Final Fantasy VI again on my SNES Classic. Oh, cool. Which, by the way, that's the best way to play Final Fantasy VI these days. Uh, the mm-hmm. GBA's music isn't quite, has the better localization, 
but it's not quite up to snuff in terms of the music. And yeah. the less said about the PlayStation port, the better. <laughs> yeah. The iOS port's ugly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really too bad. But So yeah, get a SNES Classic and play Final Fantasy VI that way. So I started a new game of it, and I was once again just completely blown away by the soundtrack, especially like yes. the leitmotifs that are going on with Terra's themes. I think in the first maybe less than an hour, you hear maybe three different variations of it. Yeah, you really do. Um, you hear one that you never hear again, but it's at the beginning cinema where they're walking in that snowy field. And that's just a, a really beautiful intro to mm. any game. And then there's a... One, a variant when you meet Tara for the first time and you're choosing her name and you're seeing that little uh, introduction of who she is. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then there's the much faster, up, more upbeat variant that you just have on the overworld. Right, which is a, just a fantastic overworld theme. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I was just... And it moves at such a breezy pace and it's really gorgeous and it has so much good music just to start. Wow, what yes. a good game. It is, isn't it? Like... It, it, I don't think it's nostalgia blinding us when we say it's just a really good RPG. Uh, nostalgia is also not blind. Uh, by the way, I apologize. I, d- I don't mean to specifically call out Dolrich, and I apologize for not actually reading your argument. Your argument was a little long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, suffice it to say, like it's okay. You don't like a game. It's cool. Uh, I guess we just disagree with you on this one. Uh, but yeah, you should sorry. go check out the show notes from last week, and you can read the entirety of the of the comment. I, I don't mean to cut your legs out from underneath you, Dolridge, but uh, Jay Cutting says, Final Fantasy VI's major narrative breakthrough is subtle. Consider the fact that they use the same sprites for the overworld towns, dungeons, and battle screens. In every other Final Fantasy, the battle sprites were much more detailed than the overworld mm-hmm. sprites. So it's a missed opportunity because most of the story and dialogue took place where the sprites were less detailed and less emotive. The FF6 sprites are super emotive. The characters' heads are exactly the same pixel height as the rest of the bodies, so the designers (laughs) could show a wide range of emotions and gestures. The consistency of the character sprites across play empowered the FF6 designers to shift the perspective seamlessly. This is why the game is able to have extreme differences in scale and differences of kind. A player can watch epic moments like a continent fall out of the sky as well as a very personal moments like a father dreaming about the child he abandoned. A Final Fantasy VI fight scene can flow into an intense narrative moment and back again without changing the camera angle. FF6 doesn't have awkward loading times or fidelity spikes for pre-rendered cutscenes used by modern games, which ultimately take the player out of the experience. This is why the opera scene is so evocative. It has huge panning camera movements appropriate for a set piece while also being engaging and familiar for the player. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, that's a good point about the sprites, and that's something uh, I noticed when I played Final Fantasy VI, and I went back to try out uh, Final Fantasy IV and Final Fantasy V, uh, but especially Final Fantasy IV, because I had to kind of squint at the uh, screen to see, like, you know, what is Cecil doing right now? Is his head down? Is something wrong with his face? I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, so it is very uh, it, uh, just a lot easier to read the characters' emotions. In FF5, uh, they would do the little laughing thing. That's true. They did that in, in FF5. They managed that much. Yeah. Getting back to plot twist, Sammy J9 says, I also want to give a shout out to one of the twistiest and most confusing RPGs I know of, Chrono Cross. It might be mm. cliched, but this was the first time in any form of media where I first encountered the trope of, it's a medieval tech level world, but suddenly you can find few ruins of the future? Broken highways, cars, etc. And it admits the medieval tech, and at the time it blew my mind. 
And the sheer amount of plot twists, explanations, revelations, and major character moments that occur all in the span of like 15 minutes, where you meet fate still makes my head explode. You couldn't have maybe spaced all that out through the plot game a little more, guys? I remember my friends and I referring (laughs) to this bit as a plot explosion, and for good reason. Yeah, it's definitely a plot explosion. To this day, um, if you ask me uh, what was thrown across about, I'll be like, I don't know. But at the same time, I do remember it had so many just great moments that are just so atmospheric, like uh, going on to the Dead Sea for the first time and seeing, you know, all those bits of Chrono Trigger's uh, history frozen in time. Uh, and it's just this really eerie landscape. Uh, I still love uh, Serge, Serge's, whatever his name is. I love him encountering his grave for the first time. That was just chilling. Um, Chrono Cross had a lot of great moments like that, but his overall plot was just a little bit nonsensical at time. Uh, Kid Gorilla calls out Nier as having a good plot twist. I would say both Nier and Nier Automata have great plot twists. Uh, if you haven't played Nier, I strongly recommend it. Um, and then they said, bad plot twist, Star Ocean till the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the one we called out, was it? Uh, yeah, we totally called that one out. And I, okay. I I was saying that it wasn't a great plot twist, but at the same time, I was like, but at the same time, there's kind of a real life theory around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we talked about how uh, my teacher would uh, like fail me if I tried to write something like that. And then P-Dub said, there are two types of people in this world. Those who go to the plot, got to the Star Ocean 3 plot twist and whispered, what the F, quietly. <laughs> and those who threw a controller and yelled, what the F? Guess which one I was. <laughs> people really That's don't like funny. that one. Uh, apparently not. I guess I don't blame them. It is kind of a little bit, uh, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right about some people thinking we live in a simulation. But if you don't feel like that, then it's just like, okay, guys, uh, you can all like uh, go have your juice in your naps now. Uh, Lord Bob Bree says, two other games I can think of that had big twists, Dragon Warrior 3 and Bankaitos. Bankaitos is especially clever with how it plays with the perspective it gives you versus the perspective you think you have. I want to say more, but it seems spoilers don't actually work here anymore. Uh, I mean, Dragon (laughs) Warrior 3, that was a big one with the connections to the original Dragon Warrior. That was, and the fact that you, Loto, the hero of of everything from the the hero of the first three games is uh, from our world. That was pretty neat. Yes, and it's like, uh, if you aren't a stupid kid like myself, you would realize that you are visiting, like, real-world locations as you play through Dragon Quest uh, Three. Like, you visit, quote-unquote, England, you, you found New York. You, 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 like, you build your own town there. Uh, you visit, like, uh, the Great Lakes area. It's, it's pretty neat, to looking back on it. All right, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you enjoy listening to the mailbag and you want to contribute... Well, you can. here's how you do it. You leave a comment on the show notes that go up on the site. Just go up to the podcast tab and look for the most recent show notes for this episode. You can send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or you can drop me a DM on Twitter at the underscore catbot and I will read the best comments on the show. Once again, please remember to subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the subscription information on the site without too much trouble. And, of course, I don't know, do all of the other things, like leave a review or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> do all the stuff. You got your homework. Do it. Thanks to Katie for coming on the show. We're going to be really busy next week because mm. we got GDC coming up. And Ooh. I'm going to be talking to a lot of different people, including uh, 
the makers of Command and Conquer. I'm really excited about that one. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah, I'm interviewing them for a retrospective, so that'll be fun. And a lot of people from the extended Gamer Network family are coming into town. And uh, we're going to see people from Eurogamer and RPS and GI.biz. We're all going to go have drinks and uh, have fun together. And then it's on the PAX East. I'll be at Boston. But the good news is uh, we're going to continue podcasting. There won't be any kind of break in the middle. I'm not going onto the show floor next Friday, so I won't have any interruptions. Hopefully I can snag an interview or or two there for the podcast. But Mm -hmm. we only got two more Top 25 RPG Countdown episodes to go, Nadia. I am very excited. Wow. And then also the the final one is timed out with the, uh, well, with our 200th episode. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Wow. Good job. Acts of the Blood God 200. I can't believe we're going to 200 of these, Nadia. Yeah. Uh, I usually don't even bother counting that high. I don't like going back to early episodes. <laughs> Same with uh, listening to myself in early episodes. I'm, I mean, I'm still awkward, but I was really awkward. Yeah, I don't feel like we really found the the format and the pace and the editing and the sound quality mm-hmm. that makes this uh, this show work until, oh, I don't know, 2017 or so. Uh, around that time, yeah. yeah, we're being generous about the it. First but yeah. couple of, the first couple of years were a little awkward, and, and then we were still working out the kinks to some degree. It ter- takes a while to get a podcast really going, right? It really does, yes. Yeah, so. But anyway, thanks to everybody for supporting the show. We'll be back next week. Also, thanks to Katie. Uh, until next time, for Katie, Nadia, and myself, thanks for listening. And until then, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.